Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to start tonight with something that kind of seems like a small thing. But it's one of those small things that when you scratch the surface a little bit, it starts to look like the symptom of a larger problem. Vice President Kamala Harris was in a car accident on Monday in Washington. Don't worry. Everyone is fine. No one was hurt. It was a one-car accident, meaning that what happened was the car she was traveling in ran into something. Here's how the Washington Post described it. Quote, the Secret Service agent driving Harris in an SUV struck the curb of a downtown tunnel hard enough that the vehicle's tire needed to be replaced, bringing the motorcade to a standstill. Harris had to be transferred to another vehicle in the motorcade so agents could safely spirit her to the White House. Like I said, small incident in the grand scheme of things. Car hits a curb. Nobody gets hurt. Vice President made it safely to the White House. And yet. The Post's Carol Lenning reported that things about the episode had both the vice president and the Secret Service leadership scratching their heads. First, there's the issue of how did an agent trained to drive the most precious cargo in the country have a one-car accident on a cleared roadway? When the president or the vice president travels in a motorcade, the streets are empty. You can see there, right there. So that part is weird. And the other red flag was what the Secret Service agents did immediately afterwards. When they sent a message alerting senior leadership about what had happened, the agents reported that a, quote, mechanical failure had forced agents to transfer Harris to another vehicle. The Secret Service director, who was just one month into the job after being appointed by President Biden, the Secret Service director had to learn from other agents that a mechanical failure was not, in fact, what happened. The Post reports that the incident, quote, concerned both the Secret Service director and the vice president and revived worries about the agency's history of concealing its mistakes. Because maybe this episode doesn't seem like the biggest deal on its own, but the Secret Service, they have been having a heck of a few months. There's a whole issue of the Secret Service apparently deleting a whole bunch of their text messages from January 6th, the day of the attack on the Capitol, and January 5th, the day before. NBC's Julia Ainsley reported just last week that the Secret Service took the phones of 24 agents involved in the January 6th response and turned them over to the Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security. But that didn't happen until this summer, which was a year and a half after the January 6th insurrection. It's unclear whether any of the missing text messages from that period will ever be recovered. And getting access to the communications of Secret Service agents from January 6th would be super important for understanding what went down that day. Because, as we learned from the January 6th committee hearings, Secret Service agents were involved in some of the most pivotal moments of that day. Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to Trump's chief of staff, she testified to being told that day of an altercation in President Trump's SUV between Trump and the head of his Secret Service detail, Bobby Engel, because Engel would not drive Trump to the Capitol to join the rioters. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. 
To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. When Cassidy Hutchinson says Mr. Ornato, who's telling her this story, she's referring to Tony Ornato, who's kind of a central figure in all this drama around the Secret Service. Ornato was an agent on Trump's protective detail for his first two years as president until he left to go work at Secret Service headquarters. But then Trump brought him back, not as a Secret Service agent, but as a top official in the West Wing, a deputy chief of staff. That was an unprecedented move. No one had ever heard of a Secret Service agent being put into a job like that, especially because of the strictly apolitical nature of the Secret Service. In the aftermath of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, anonymous Secret Service officials told reporters that both Tony Ornato and Trump's lead agent, Bobby Engel, would testify that the altercation, the one Cassidy Hutchinson describes, that that never happened. But neither of those men ever did give that testimony. A few days after Hutchinson's testimony, the head of the Secret Service just up and quit. A few weeks later, Tony Ornato, he quit the Secret Service as well. And then there is the unsettling question that still hangs over January 6th when it comes to the Secret Service and Vice President Mike Pence. The vice president famously told the head of his detail that day, I'm not getting in that car when the Secret Service tried to get him into a vehicle. Some members of the January 6th committee have suggested that that was because Pence had reason to worry, worry that the Secret Service was trying to ferry him away from the Capitol and not just for his safety. Committee member Jamie Raskin called Pence's refusal that I'm not getting in that car. He called that six of the most chilling words in American history. And now, today, we have this. In the ongoing seditious conspiracy trial of the far-right paramilitary group, the Oath Keepers, for their role in the attack on the Capitol, today, a former member of that group testified that its leader claimed to have a contact in the Secret Service. And he said that months before the January 6th attack, he overheard Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes having a phone conversation with someone Rhodes said was a Secret Service agent. Rhodes was discussing parameters under which the Oath Keepers would operate at a Trump rally. This possible contact between Stuart Rhodes and the Secret Service is particularly noteworthy because another Oath Keeper has testified that on January 6th, Stuart Rhodes tried to reach President Trump through some kind of intermediary. Could that also have been a Secret Service agent? We don't know. For the record, Stuart Rhodes' lawyer says no such conversation took place on January 6th. And the January 6th committee has officially announced its next and possibly last hearing for one week from today, next Thursday the 13th. There will likely be more revelations from that as well, but boy, a lot of the questions we still have about January 6th seem to revolve around the Secret Service. What exactly is going on over there? Joining us now is NBC News Homeland Security correspondent Julia Ainsley. Julia, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I know you have gotten... Thanks for having me, Alex. 
I know you have gotten a statement this evening from the Secret Service in response to the claim made in court today by the Oath Keepers. I'll read a part of it. Uh, the Secret Service says, we are aware that individuals from the Oath Keepers have contacted us in the past to make inquiries. It is not uncommon for various organizations to contact us concerning security restrictions and activities that are permissible in proximity to our protected sites. Julia, that is not a denial that there was contact between the Oath Keepers and the Secret Service. How do you parse that statement? Yeah, I would definitely not see it as a denial, Alex. In fact, I think they're normalizing this. They're trying to explain that as long as they aren't putting the duty of law enforcement, of enforcing laws and arming people like the Oath Keepers, it's okay for those conversations to occur. In other words, it would have been okay for someone like Stuart Rhodes to be in contact with the Secret Service, especially regarding security for an event. And this was an event where they were talking about in North Carolina in September of 2020, just before the January 6th insurrection, when the Oath Keepers would have been walking people into a rally in order to, I guess, protect them from protesters who might have been gathering outside the rally. They're saying there may, we learned today in court, uh, that there may have been conversations between Stuart Rhodes and someone in the Secret Service about that. But it's not clear whether or not that actually happened, who they would have been talking to. And I will say that if that kind of conversation is going to happen, that's something that would normally be established through official channels. It would be something they would want to keep transparent and very much part of a security plan, not anything that may kind of go beneath the surface so that it would look like there's some kind of cooperation or agreement with the ideals that are motivating an event or a group like that in the first place. So again, yeah. there's a lot of questions about the Secret Service, uh, not only what we learned yesterday, but their involvement in January 6th. And even more of a mystery, why we don't yet know about their communications on that day, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I think it's shocking to some people, the idea that Stuart Rhodes, the head of a group that a lot of people consider a domestic terrorist organization, would be phoning directly a Secret Service agent. The Secret Service seems to want to say in that statement, nothing to see here, folks, and almost kind of tries to position itself akin to like the National Park Service. Like, oh, things happen here and we give people logistical information about security. But what the conversation that we're hearing about in court today suggests exactly what you say, a direct and, and sort of unidentified conversation between these two entities, the head of the Oath Keepers and the Secret Service. Normally, did we know that the Secret Service was fielding these kind of inquiries? I mean, is this part of the sort of institutional service provided by the agency? What would be normal would be, say, you're organizing a march or a rally that would involve a number of law enforcement organizations. Say it's here in D.C., you go to the park police. The Secret Service is aware of how many people because you've requested a permit in order to gather with a group that big. Those would be official conversations through official channels. It wouldn't be someone going off and having a quick cell phone conversation with someone. This does seem unusual. But I will say, just in my experience from covering the Secret Service and covering things like January 6th and the Secret Service's involvement in January 6th, I often find that there's a lot that happens at an individual level within the Secret Service. Agents themselves 
doing things, talking that doesn't always get brought up to the level of senior leadership, doesn't always get brought up to the level of their press secretary. So it very well could be that we're getting a statement tonight from a press secretary that just found out about this today. And I can give you many examples of this. One would be reporting we had last week about the fact that the Secret Service leadership went in and confiscated 24 cell phones from agents involved in January 6th. And we understand that there was actually a lot of friction between those agents and the leadership that confiscated those phones. It's not really a centralized law enforcement agency in the way you may see perhaps a metropolitan police department operate. Oftentimes there can be silos within the Secret Service. I've seen it before. I've seen things happen within this agency that don't always get spread around. Although they do have accountability measures in place, it's not often that everyone knows what every part of the agency is doing. That may have happened in this case. We don't know enough yet to know if this was an authorized or sanctioned communication. And frankly, we're not learning that from the statement tonight. Well, and we might never learn. I, I do. I want, you mentioned the 24 phones that were turned over by, you know, uh, with the permission of those agents or against their will. Do we have an expectation that any of the text messages exchanged on January 5th and 6th are at all recoverable at this point? What Do you have any sense of what might be on those phones that is still relevant to this investigation? What I've been told is that those phones were essentially restored to factory settings because of what they did system-wide to all of their phones in early 2021. It's not clear what can be recovered, but I understand this investigation goes on. And we should point out that's a criminal investigation. The DHS Inspector General has said it's a, a criminal investigation, although we could go on on that investigation itself, what the DHS IG is actually doing to get to those text messages, why it's criminal. That investigation in itself is a black box and many members of Congress have called for the DHS IG to be more forthcoming about his work there. That's a separate issue, but really at the heart of it, the questions you're asking, the questions I'm asking, the questions we're all asking tonight, what was the Secret Service's role in January 6th? And now, from what we're learning in court, what was their relationship like with groups like the Oath Keepers? Could there have been individual relationships between agents and the leaders of some of those groups? Or was it, as they're suggesting here, some kind of authorized, very normal conversation? More questions to ask because we're learning every day how essential uh, their role was in January 6th. Yeah. And it's, by the way, not just the Oath Keepers that people have questions for. The Proud Boys as well. We know that um, we have our first Proud Boy today, Jeremy Bertino, who pleaded guilty and has agreed to cooperate. Uh, the reason we know about any of the Secret Service correspondence is because of one of the other Proud Boys who's, or sorry, Oath Keepers who's pleaded guilty. So we could learn much more from Proud Boys who are pleading guilty to seditious conspiracy. NBC News Homeland Security correspondent Julia Ainsley, thanks for the great reporting. Thanks for joining me tonight, Julia. Thanks. One piece of breaking news to let you know about. The New York Times reports tonight that the Justice Department's top counterintelligence official has told Donald Trump's lawyers that the DOJ believes that Trump still has not returned all the documents he took from the White House. In other words, even after the FBI raided his beach club, Mar-a-Lago, and carted away 11,000 government documents, the DOJ believes Trump still has more. The Times reports that after the DOJ told Trump's lawyers of its suspicions, one of Trump's attorneys suggested hiring a forensic firm to search for more documents at Trump's properties. 
Trump initially went along with that plan until he was convinced by his more combative lawyers to take a more confrontational approach to the Department of Justice. The lawyer who wanted to cooperate has since basically been sidelined. As for what happens now, the Times notes, quote, it is not clear what steps the Justice Department might take to retrieve any material it thinks Mr. Trump still holds. That is a developing story. Up next here tonight, Herschel Walker holds an impromptu press conference about the report that he paid for a woman to have an abortion. And let's just say it did not go well. The reporter who broke the story for The Nation and for The Daily Beast. He'll join us live coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. According to the article, one uh, the woman who says that you paid for her to have an abortion is also the mother of one of your children. It seems like that's that's an easy way. Because of the article, I had more kids. That's why I didn't reach out to anyone because I said no. And that's what I mean. When I said no, I, I said it's not correct. That's a lie. The abortion thing is false. It's a lie. That was Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate for a Georgia Senate seat, the man who wants a national abortion ban, speaking today at a campaign event. Reporters peppered Walker with questions about recent reporting that he not only encouraged and paid for an abortion for a woman he was involved with in 2009, he actually fathered a child with that same woman. And Walker responded to those reporters with yet more denials, we think. Initially, it sounded like Walker was saying the allegations are all a lie. But then shortly after that, he said, on the other hand, it's nothing to be ashamed of, we think. Or on top of that, or maybe in tandem with that, Walker seemed to at least not patently deny the allegation that he threatened his ex-wife and was violent towards her and their son. With my ex-wife in my past, nothing to do with what this woman said. Anything happened with my ex-wife or what Christian was talking about, I don't know. But as I said, if anything happened, there's nothing to be ashamed of because my ex-wife and I have been the best of friends with her husband and my wife. The reporter who broke the stories that sparked this week's Herschel Walker saga is Roger Sollenberger. On Monday, Roger reported that a woman who asked not to be identified for privacy concerns had an abortion in 2009 after she became pregnant with Walker's child. She told the Daily Beast that Walker reimbursed her for the abortion. To back up her claims, she even had a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card from Walker, and a bank deposit with the image of a personal check signed by Walker. According to the Daily Beast, Walker asked the woman to terminate the pregnancy because it was, quote, not the right time for him. 
Then last night, as we were on the air, Roger Sollenberger broke this story. The woman who Walker reimbursed for that abortion in 2009 also had a child with him. The Daily Beast released that additional information about the woman's identity after Walker denied that he knew the woman's identity during a Fox News interview. Walker also bashed the woman for remaining anonymous. She, in turn, told the Daily Beast that, quote, her chief concern with revealing her name was because she is the mother of one of Walker's own children, and she wanted to protect her family's privacy as best she could while also coming forward with the truth. The Daily Beast says Walker has publicly acknowledged the child as his own, and the woman proved she is the child's mother. In the meantime, Herschel Walker continues his denials, or whatever they are, exactly. Joining us now is Roger Sollenberger, the Daily Beast political reporter who broke this story last night. Roger, thank you so much for being here tonight, and thank you for your reporting. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. I, I want to get your thoughts on the scope of this saga, because Politico earlier this week published a piece that seemed to corroborate the same story that you told in the Daily Beast that suggested that Walker's abortion story was an open secret in Georgia political circles. But you were on uh, MSNBC earlier this week with my colleague Chris Hayes and suggested that that story that is mentioned in Politico may not be the same one as the one you reported on in the Daily Beast, thereby suggesting that there could be more than one woman that Herschel Walker paid to have an abortion. Is that is that where we are at this point in this story? Well, uh, I would first start by focusing back on that one woman. I say this first and foremost every time, and she is incredibly brave. She's remarkable, and she has some really remarkable things to say, and I encourage everybody to read our second report that identifies her as the mother of one of the children and see what she has to say about that. I'll talk more about that later. But yes, the Politico report that came out um, seemed to imply that this uh, allegation had been out there and that people had known about it. Washington Post reported actually just tonight um, that somebody who had been advising the Walker campaign when they were vetting him earlier, that that allegation never showed up. Um, one of the, the only on-record source at the Politico uh, article uh, you know, came, but she walked it back later. She said that I now don't really think that this might be the same allegation. And you're asking me personally, uh, I don't have any reason to believe that it is the same allegation. Uh, from what I know about uh, my source and about her story and about how I came into it, uh, I have no reason to believe that it's the same. And there may well be more. Yeah, I'll quote your source again at a very courageous woman. When reacting to the news that Walker said he doesn't know her, she said, sure, I was stunned, but I guess it also doesn't shock me that maybe there are just so many of us that he truly doesn't remember. But then again, if he really forgot about it, the abortion, that says something, too. Indeed, it does say something, too. Does she think that he legitimately forgot about this or this is all political expediency? Um, she's, you know, she's open to the possibility that I guess he would be able to forget about something like this, which again, as she said, really, you know, that's another statement in and of itself, really. Um, what she did speak to a lot, uh, you know, more about, you know, her actual knowledge of her relationship 
with Walker, her memory of it is that, you know, he urged her to have this abortion. He paid her for it. And then she got pregnant a second time. And the second time, Walker said it was also not convenient for her to have the child. So she said in uh, that second report that, you know, she put it pretty well that, you know, Walker was not responsible for the child that we didn't have. And then when we had a child, right, he wasn't responsible for that one either. Um, she really values the fact that she had the chance to make the choice both times. She's not ashamed of the choice. It's just part of what makes her who she is, she says. You know, uh, and she says that Walker was able to have a say both times as well. Uh, I'd also like to note that Walker, in his denial uh, today, uh, seemed to imply that Maybe this woman was a different mother of a different child. And I think he was saying that to imply that perhaps this woman doesn't exist. Uh, after he said that today, uh, we reported very plainly exactly which child this woman is the mother of. Uh, he said, you know, that he hadn't reached out to her. Um, he said, why would I have to do that? I mean, it seems pretty obvious, like why you would reach out to her, right? Uh, but she still hasn't heard from him, uh, to the best of my knowledge. That's what she told me today. And, uh, I really can't say why. Yeah. Well, I mean, the callous disregard, I'll just say it, uh, this woman has faced from Herschel Walker and to some degree his campaign. I think one of the more under discussed aspects of your reporting is that this woman, I'll read the quote, this woman, a registered Democrat who still com communicates with Walker, said Walker did not tell her about his plan to run for the Senate before his announcement on in August of 2021. Since then, however, one of Walker's top surrogates has asked her repeatedly if she would be willing to vouch for his character, reaching out as recently as this August. This woman who had an abortion paid for by Herschel Walker, the, the contact she's had from the campaign is being asked to vouch for Herschel Walker's character. Has she had any contact with them between August and when this story broke? Do you know? And, and furthermore, what, what do you surmise from the relationship between Herschel Walker and his campaign in terms of transparency? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. Uh, the woman tells me that she has not uh, been in contact with them uh, since that August outreach. Uh, they reached out to her. The, the context, just for the viewers out there, um, when the woman was contacted first and asked to vouch for Walker's character, that was after we broke a story, uh, the first story that revealed that Walker, who is an outspoken critic of absentee fathers in the black community, pretty specifically, uh, that he had a secret son that he did not appear active in raising. And that was this woman's son. After that story broke, a uh, day later, I got tipped to another child. And when that story was about to break, um, somewhere in there is where the campaign reached out to her and said, you know, uh, would you like to, you know, say, uh, I know the, what they said, but I'm not going to say it here, but like, you know, would you like to vouch for his character is the way that she, she wanted it phrased, right? Uh, so it was in response to that, and she was not aware that Walker had another secret child. She did not know that wow. at the time.
Wow. I mean, it is a, yeah. a, a story of staggering hypocrisy on every level. I, Roger, I have many more questions to ask you. We're going to leave it there for tonight. But thank you for your continued dogged reporting on this incredibly important story. Roger Sollenberger, Daily Beast political reporter. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Alex. We will have more on the Herschel Walker story just ahead. Today, reporters finally got the chance to ask his opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, about those allegations. We'll have his, his response and what it says about the very, very different campaigns that are being conducted in the state of Georgia. New York Times columnist Charles Blow joins us coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Rebel One Ops running a nasty, dishonest campaign. Perfect for Washington. The Reverend doesn't even tell my full story, my true story. Warnock's a preacher who doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't even believe in redemption. I'm Herschel Walker, saved by grace, and I approve this message. That was a brand new ad just released by embattled Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. Amid allegations that the supposedly pro-life Walker paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion, the Republican candidate is now trying to focus the debate back on his opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, calling him nasty and dishonest. There is only one problem with that argument. Senator Warnock has not actually said much of anything about Walker and his latest scandal. Instead, the Reverend Senator has done basically what he's always done throughout his short political career. He's taking the high road. This is Senator Warnock today responding to reporter questions about the scandal surrounding Herschel Walker. Your uh, opponent, Herschel Walker, has denied the allegations against him in a story about him paying for an abortion in 2009 and denied that uh, he also had a child with the woman who was uh, uh, in question here. Do you believe him? I believe that my position on this has been consistent. It has not changed. That a patient's room is too narrow and cramped a space for a woman or a doctor in the United States government. I believe in women and, uh, and in their right to make their own health care decisions. And I think the people of Georgia need a senator who will stand with women. I believe in women and in their right to make their own health care decisions. Throughout that press conference, Senator Warnock repeatedly declined to attack his opponent for his apparent hypocrisy on the issue of abortion and instead focused like a laser on the stark legal realities facing Georgia women and Georgia voters generally. 
That kind of above-the-fray, relentlessly-on-message discipline from Senator Warnock is exactly what voters have come to expect from him, because that is the kind of politician that Senator Raphael Warnock just is. Contrast that with his opponent, who spent the day fumbling his response to a growing scandal in interview after interview. Here was Herschel Walker responding to the abortion allegations with conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt. I know nothing about any woman having an abortion. And uh, so they can, they can keep coming at me like that. If that had happened, I would have I said it because there's nothing to be ashamed of there. You know, people have done that, but I know nothing about it. And uh, if I knew about it, I, I would be honest and talk about it. But I know nothing about that. I know nothing about it. If that had happened, I would have said it because there's nothing to be ashamed of. But I know nothing about it. This is a choice before Georgia voters this November. Joining us now is Charles Blow, opinion columnist for The New York Times and an MSNBC political analyst. Charles, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. So what do you make of the the study in these two campaigns? I mean, Warnock is a relentlessly disciplined politician, despite the fact that he's a relative newcomer. Um, What do you think of his strategy for not engaging on this? Well, I mean, as you pointed out, that is consistent for him. I think, you know, Raphael Warnock, in addition to being a quality candidate, has had the great fortune of having horrible opponents. And he you know, kind of lets them, you know, collapse onto themselves. And I think that that is what he is hoping will happen here. That's what his campaign is ho- hoping will happen. Uh, Walker, on the other hand, has a machine that is just trying to ram through one of the most horrific, unqualified, horrible candidates ever to, to you know, to run for the Senate. And they are go- coming up against an electorate on the Republican side that is thirsty for that because what happened in 2020 was earth shattering in Georgia. Uh, This is not really even about Warnock and Walker. This is about who gets to make the choice. Mm -hmm. And Republicans, white people, generally speaking, in Georgia had always been able to call the shots. Mm -hmm. And that election, led by black voters, other voters of color, they changed that dynamic. And that shocked everyone. And so this is just, uh, you know, a kind of tribal entrenchment. They don't really care very much about what Walker is being accused of. They don't care how good Warnock is. They care about whether or not they will be able to prove that they still get to call the shots. What do you I mean, you've written about this um, earlier this year in September. You wrote about the importance of the fact that Herschel Walker is a black man, the importance for Georgia Republicans that they have a black man that they can vote for. You say, Mr. Walker, I believe you when you say you're not that smart. You are the personification of a game being played by Georgia Republicans, a wager that any black Republican, in your case, an empty intellectual vessel, can beat the black Democrat, a man who is thoroughly qualified and utterly decent. Can you explain that more fully, why it matters that Herschel Walker So there are black. multiple levels of this race game being played with these two candidates. First, it was Donald Trump who chose him. Yeah. Donald Trump went into uh, his con- nominating convention that summer, having spent two years on a war against NFL players, most more specifically, but all players, generally speaking, who were being very vocal and saying, we are standing up for black lives. Yeah. And he found a black athlete that people loved who would say, he's not racist and I know racism 
And he's just saying respect the flag. And that's exactly what the speech that Herschel Walker gave at that convention. And Donald Trump never forgot that and wanted to pay him back. And so he chose, he, you know, handpicked Walker to run. That part of that calculation was that he was the anti Colin Kaepernick. But part of it was also that, you know, that there was a black guy who had one, and he was having to defend that seat. And I have a black guy who I like. I have my black. I have my black guy. And so he thrust him into that. No, they didn't really run a vigorous campaign against Walker in the primaries. So he coasts to a victory on the shoulders of Donald Trump. And now they are stuck in a situation where they have these two candidates. They have to vote. You know, the, the, the tribalism is intense. So they have to vote to Republicans. And they also give to say to themselves, even though we supported all of these voter disenfranchisement laws that are aimed very specifically at black people, I'm voting for a black guy. So I cannot be that bad. It's a way to reestablish their anti-racist bona fides while supporting someone who's utterly unqualified for office. It is also the question of what the ascension of Walker to the national stage does in terms of race. I I do want to call your attention to Brittany Cooper, who is a professor at Rutgers and who's Mm -hmm. been tweeting on this. And she has some very strong words for Herschel Walker. She says, when I see the walking stereotype of black male mediocrity that is Herschel Walker, I am reminded that a significant swath of white folks need this to be who black people are, who black men are. Violent, idiotic, brute, immoral deadbeats. The GOP's support for Herschel Walker's candidacy is designed as a continual insult and assault on all who strive to be black and excellent or hell, just black and decent. <laughs> That's pretty. <laughs> you can't really follow that. But, but I, I will say this, that, you know, he is being used as a tool in that way. All those things are true, and he will do exactly what they say. Right. Like, if all those things are true and he were liberal, it's a no-go. If all those things, if, if he's Wilfred Warnock, who is none of those things, yeah. excellent, he's a no-go. The fact that he will be kind of obedient and do as told makes all of this okay for them. And it does make a bit of a caricature of blackness. It, it, it is an insult to black competence, what they are doing in Georgia. The, the hypocrisy, I will just leave it at the hypocrisy in this moment, between the Christianity, the absentee father, the, the, the message of redemption, the lies, it's, uh, we're in one hell of a moment, Charles Blow. Opinion columnist for the New York Times, it's great to see you. Thanks for your Thank thoughts you. tonight, Charles. Thank you so much. We have more to come here. Stay with us. We have some breaking news tonight. At a fundraiser in New York this evening, President Biden just made some extraordinary and highly alarming comments about Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine and the threat of nuclear war. Biden said the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at the highest level since 1962. Quote, for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. We haven't faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Joining us now to help parse those comments and understand where we are at is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama. Ben, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, first, your reaction to uh, President Biden using the word Armageddon and uh, recalling 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Well, I think that's uh, a shorthand, right? Armageddon is a shorthand for, you know, the potential for nuclear conflagration. The reality here is we do have a threat from Vladimir Putin about the use of a nuclear weapon. The distinction I draw from the Cuban Missile Crisis is that was the U.S. and the Soviet Union, two superpowers in a nuclear standoff where a nuclear exchange could have been Armageddon. What we have here is a threat really of the potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine uh, that would would obviously be an uh, awful escalation for the people of Ukraine and a potential risk of the escalation of that conflict. But, uh, you know, I, we're not quite at the level of, uh, again, I think, concern of where things got in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I think what he's reflecting is this is the first time in a very long time, decades, that we've had to take seriously the possibility that nuclear weapon can be used. And, and that is something that people should be taking very seriously. I would say, Ben, to that end, Biden did talk about tactical nukes and said, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, think I think that... the situation. Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's I mean, you're, you're, you can parse this. The, the, I think what people should keep in mind is a nuclear weapon that is of the kind that we were talking about in the Cuban Missile Crisis is the kind of weapon that destroys cities, right? Strategic nuclear weapons. A tactical nuclear weapon uh, could be of a yield that is a fraction of the yield of the atomic bomb that we used in Hiroshima. Look, any nuclear weapons use is horrific and a catastrophe and is ushering us into a new age that we don't want to be in. And it's horrible for anybody who's in the vicinity, uh, not just of that explosion, but of the nuclear fallout for it. Uh, I think the risk of Armageddon comes from whether or not a, that weapon is used, and B, things escalate to the point where the United States and Russia are in a conflict, right? And so I do think we have lots of steps to go here. We've seen threats from Putin. We have not necessarily seen the U.S. Uh, making reference to the fact that Russia's nuclear arsenal has been put on a different posture. So we've not seen yeah. Russia acting on that threat yet. Uh, and then there's a secondary question of what might happen after the use of a nuclear weapon. So we have further to go before I think we're getting into the kinds of nuclear standoff scenarios that we uh, you know, all learned about from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but I think what the president's comments do reflect is, for the first time in a very long time, we're even having this conversation. And this is yeah. not a conversation that anybody wants to be having. Indeed. I mean, I, and he wondered aloud at the same fundraiser just moments ago. I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp? Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not only lose face, but lose significant power within Russia? I mean, I, that's something I think we've all wondered. And do you think at this point there is an off ramp for Putin? Do you think he's even looking for one? Nothing that Putin's doing suggests that with the mobilization that he's done within Russia, with how much he's personally invested in this war. I think the reality everybody understands is there, frankly, is really no safe face saving path out for Putin. He's already failed. He failed to conquer Ukraine. He failed to conquer Kiev. Now he's failing to even hold the territories that he wanted to annex in Ukraine. He doesn't even control the territory that he announced before the Russian people in the world he was annexing. And, and so you, you want a, an off-ramp of sorts, obviously, from an escalation and the use of nuclear weapons. But a face-saving situation for Vladimir Putin might not be possible right now. Um, and, and that's a circumstance where you don't know whether if Putin is cornered, he decides to escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. Frankly, we also don't know. Somebody has to follow that order inside of Russia, right? So there's a lot of uncertainties here. There's a lot of dangers for Vladimir Putin in taking that step. 
China, his biggest benefactor in the world, I'm sure, does not want to see this happen. No country in the world wants to see the taboo around nuclear weapons broken. So Vladimir Putin has a lot of risks, too, as he considers whether to take that step. Um, but the, this question of how the war in Ukraine ends, uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. Not Joe Biden, not Vladimir Putin, not Volodymyr Zelensky. So that, I think, is what makes this such an uncertain situation. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned uh, Xi Jinping and Modi in India to some degree is also someone that's uh, cooled Putin's jets, to, I, I guess, marginally in all of this. Would you expect that there are bilateral talks or trilateral talks going on between the U.S., China and India to make sure that someone is talking to Vladimir Putin and trying to talk him off the ledge in terms of nuclear? Alex, it's a really good point, because um, what we've seen is reports of you know the U.S. sending messages to Russia, warning them against doing this. I'm sure that's happening. I'm also sure that's what's happening is the U.S. is reaching out to China and saying, look, we have not been getting along very well lately. We may even have different views about the war in Ukraine and the sanctions that we've imposed. Uh, China's continued to buy Russian oil uh, probably far above what we would want in the United States. But nobody would win from a scenario in which there's a use of nuclear weapons, even a smaller tactical nuclear weapon inside of Ukraine. It would usher in a new world in which the nuclear taboo has been broken. It could escalate the conflict between NATO and Russia. Um, China really does not want that either. And so I, I think the U.S. going to China and having the Chinese lean on the Russians together with us and other countries is part of what's happening right now. Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama. Thanks for rolling with me on this breaking news, Ben. And thanks for making time to join us tonight. We'll, we'll be right back. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.